This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Today is September the 23rd. My name is John Dunn. Thank you for being here, for listening, subscribing, and sharing, and for everything you do to help homeless pets. Just about a month ago, episode 76, we talked with Caitlin Quinn from the organization HeartSpeak about how we can be more effective when it comes to marketing the pets in our care to the public. It's a valuable discussion anytime, but given that adoptions are down as much as they are this year, it is very valuable. Now, for those of you who work at shelters or rescue organizations, there's a very good chance you are in this same situation. The available shelter data for 2021 is showing that through the end of July, adoptions down just over 19% compared to the last full pre-pandemic year of 2019. 19% down. I am bad at math, but that's a lot. So if you are in this situation and you're struggling to get pets out of the door into homes, have you considered a fee-waived adoption promotion? Now, you may well be doing promotions like this already because it's a proven best practice, but there's still a lot of resistance to it. The same concerns are brought up today that we heard more than 20 years ago when the first fee-waived adoption promotions took place. Things like, if someone adopts an animal for free, they'll love the animal less. Or, returns will go through the roof because people will adopt impulsively. Or, look out for dogfighters and other nefarious people who will take advantage of the promotion to do bad things. But study after study after study over the last 20 years has shown that how much someone pays for an animal has no bearing on how much the pet is loved. Pets adopted with fees or with no fees, they're loved the same. The statistics show they're not returned or abandoned at higher rates, and offering fee-waived adoptions doesn't force you to put a blindfold on and give an animal to anyone who walks in the door. You still perform the same adoption process, hopefully an open, solution-based, bias-free conversational approach. Now, there are a lot of layers to this. I get it. And I know some organizations are concerned about losing revenue from waiving fees. Now that alone is a separate episode on effective fundraising, but with amazing support available from national organizations and others like the Bissell Pet Foundation, you can take part in promotions like Bissell's Empty the Shelters campaign and get reimbursed for those waived fees. It's also a great opportunity to find a local business that might be willing to step up and partner to cover fees for an adoption event. So to learn more about how one community used fee-waived adoption promotions along their journey to becoming no-kill, I spoke with Dr. Karen Shepard, the director of Huntsville Animal Services in Alabama. I've always loved animals, very classic background. Um, my big passion were dogs and horses as a child. I always wanted to be a veterinarian and, and was fortunate enough that I actually had the resources and had the grades and was able to get into veterinary school and get through. Um, I practiced in small animal medicine and continued to pursue my passion of dogs, cats, added everything in, birds, uh, rats, horses, of course. After probably maybe five or six years of just small animal practice, I kind of could see it was just the same little 10 questions or 100 class up uh, hundred sort of cases. And, and I just was a little bored, to be honest, I, I loved it, but I was a little bored. 
and the director position for Huntsville Animal Services, which is our local animal open admission animal control facility, came available and I interviewed and they offered me the job. And uh, it was quite intimidating. It was a uh, organization of mainly people that had been in that been there for 10, 15 and 20 years and were very well versed in their passion of animal control and what they felt like uh, the organization was adding to their community. And I completely respected all of that, but I had a very different vision and it was much more on track with a no kill type execution and uh, learned a really valuable lesson because I really thought probably I'd be able to fix that all in a couple of years and then I'd move on. And so I've been here 19 years and I'm still hammering away at it and uh, very humbling, a great life lesson. And I've heard a lot of shelter directors speak of it much more eloquently than I have, but it is like turning a huge ship. And I regret often not turning the ship faster, but I there were so many things to navigate and uh, I am where I am, you know, I'm here, but it took a long time to start saving the percentage of lives that we wanted to. So 2015 was the first year that we hit our 90% live release rate by embracing all of the principles associated with how to do that and be an open admission shelter with a significantly high intake, not nearly what a lot of the big cities experience, but about 14 animals per capita. So I love my job and I love the great work we do here. And um, free adoptions has really been a big part of the success we've had. So Dr. Shepard, Huntsville Animal Services, Huntsville geographically, uh, for those that are not familiar, you are in the northeast corner of Alabama, basically. Uh, the shelter itself, you said, I think 14 per capita intake, but please save me from doing math. Uh, what's the annual intake? We deal with about 5,000 animals a year, uh, 3,000 dogs and 2,000 cats and about 100 other. And we have been working really hard. And I think one of the reasons our intake has been managed so well is we've had a pretty vibrant low-income spay-neuter program. A lot of people don't like using the word low-income, and I understand it. We just have limited spots available for people to get pets fixed. And so our program, it's about $150,000 a year, plus any sort of grants that we might get. And we want to spay and neuter those individuals who need our assistance, and we want to make sure that when they call the veterinary clinic, they can get in quickly. And there's a $5 copay. And so we feel that that has kept us from going from 5,000 to 6,000 to 8,000 to 10,000 animals. And uh, it's one of the cornerstones of our success. Now, what an interesting story uh, and background, Karen. Uh, 2002, that's when you took the job? Yes. So you come into this fresh, I mean, meaning you had not worked in a shelter environment at all before that time. Correct. And you're a veterinarian, which in my opinion, that in and of itself is always really interesting. You know, I know you're not the only vet that's done it. Dr. Ellen Jefferson, Austin, Austin Pets Alive comes to mind. Still far too few vets in the sheltering side of the world, as we know. Yeah. So it's just so fascinating to me that in 2002, a vet with no prior experience working in a private practice seeks out a director position in a municipal animal shelter 
and from the very beginning, really champion no-kill programs. Yeah. So now I'm curious, you know, where in Alabama in 2002 were you getting all of that kind of information? Yeah. Well, it captured my attention. I think that that was when Rich Avanzino was sharing his message and how a veterinarian, I'm not real sure how I captured that. There was um, a, a lady here locally, her name is Nina Bill, and she became a no-kill. And so I listened to what she had to say about that message and mission. And uh, so, uh, you know, I was a believer. I thought I saw how um, so many of my clients were very willing to help animals and wanted to save animals. And uh, so I could just, I thought, well, yeah, sure, that's got to work. Easy. I thought, oh, it'll be easy. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was super easy, right? All you had to do was just snap the fingers and overnight you're no kill. So, listen, you had been a vet in private practice, but you didn't have sheltering experience. Do you remember any of the beliefs you held back then? I mean, as a vet, you surely saw things that shaped your beliefs around pets and, and, and pet ownership and people. Looking back now, are there things that stick out to you in terms of, you know, what you knew then and, and what you did then versus what you know now and what you do now, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I wasn't aggressive or assertive enough. Uh, some, I figured out I had to understand my coworkers and where they, I needed to meet them somewhat where they were and start building a foundation. I regret not being smarter and faster and savvier and motivating. You know, I look at a lot of the the things that I could have done today, then, you know, it's just that that hindsight sort of. So I, um, I have a lot of regrets and a lot of guilt about that. I had to accept that I had to start working on making sure the building got cleaned properly, that the animals were cared for well, and even if we had to humanely euthanize them, they were cared for. And that was a lot of the goal. And then we just started trying to build a better adoption program. So I have to say I accepted some of the, I accepted that we had to euthanize a lot of animals and had to euthanize the diseased and sick animals. And now, you know, the numbers were much higher then. We were pulling in around 8,000 8,500 animals. And then we got down to around 5,000 and I've had more staff. We had better protocols. So it's tough. I wished I had had a mentor, but there really were not any mentors at that time. And um, so I hope I can be one to other people. Well, Dr. Shepard, I know you are a mentor to others. Uh, I can tell you everybody at Best Friends that I talked to uh, ahead of the episode, uh, I told him you were going to be the guest and everyone just uh, speaks so highly of you. And I think it says a lot about who you are that you decided to even take the job uh, and to stick it out the way that you have for so long through through so much. Uh, really incredibly inspiring. Do you remember the first time you uh, held a fee-waived adoption event? So that would have been in 2014, I believe was the first time we did it. So I was not a role model there as far as doing it before other people had done the research and the hard work to say, no, it, it doesn't affect the quality of adopters. So we started that in 14 and had enormous success because we were just so always so full 
with animals and needed adopters. And so uh, that built on itself and more and more people just started when they, you know, networking, hey, I got a really nice pet. It ended up being free. It was fully vetted. And then they would tell all their friends. And so it it really built on itself. I think before 14, one of our big go-tos, which was real common in that era, that time, was those big adoption events where you would have reduced fees, but not free. So instead of the pets being 70, 80, 90, $100, a lot of the pets were $35. And, you know, you took a lot of pets to one location and the public would come and you'd adopt everybody. So that's sort of what we were doing um, oh, nine, 10, 11, 12. Going into it, did you have reservations about doing fee waived adoptions? Yes, I did. It's been so long ago. I was somewhat concerned. I also knew that someone like me and a lot of my coworkers who were excellent pet owners, we would love to get a free pet. And it wasn't obviously going to change anything in the way that we handled the pet. And so I spent processing through that, asking a lot of people's questions, but there still was a lot of anxiety when we did our very first fee waived adoption. And uh, we had people lined up that morning, you know, just like, Oh my, I think we did 60 adoptions when we did that first fee waived. I think it was when Zappos sponsored it. Um, Might've been Thanksgiving. I think it was Zappos with y'all with y'all. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I mean, y'all, so y'all really best friends partnered with me in a very special way. I think in 12 and 13 and 14 and even 15, y'all were doing some things to try to reach me, you know, me, the person in the shelter director who needed some support and some mentoring. And you were a absolute best friend and we're saving so many lives. So that Zappos adoption, we basically emptied the shelter. It was amazing. And so what we had done is we talked among ourselves and I said, look, if someone comes in and we're concerned, let's, and I've always believed in open adoptions. That's probably something from the very beginning. I didn't call it that. I just felt like we shouldn't discriminate. We should not limit that if someone wanted a pet and they came to a municipal shelter for it, that we should help them make a good decision and accommodate them the best way we could. So that was probably one thing that I did have really grounded in me from the very beginning because I saw it in my private practice. Even though we were a fluent private practice, we had people that were the spe- you know the full spectrum and I saw the love that each of them had. So I'd already seen it. And so I felt that that was true um, in the sheltering adoption field. So we had a program set up and we still do this because we just recently did a free adoption. And if anyone comes in at any time that we feel like needs more attention and maybe uh, we would do a home visit before we would let them adopt the pet or we'd let them adopt the pet. And then we'd follow up with a home visit, which we don't, you know, we rarely ever do home visits. So that's, you know, what we, that's what we decided. And what happened is we had probably four or five adopters on that very first free day uh, that we did follow-ups with. And the officers all came back and said, I don't know what y'all were worried about, 
those, those animals were like center of attention. You know, we went unannounced, you know, we just said, Hey, we're going to follow up in the next week. They were on the couch. They were, they had, you know, a 50 pound bag of dog food. They're so excited about the pet. They love the cat. The cat was on the kitchen table. Uh, you know, so there was just this huge sigh of relief and it gave all of us a sense of if there is a poor mistake made, we, we can talk people through it and we can either add the support or, and we have rarely ever had to take a pet back from an owner. Um, it, it, but we have. And so, but there was just a visible, you know, relief in all the volunteers that worked here and all the employees and all the clerks. And so that first couple of years, we did a lot of free adoptions whenever we would get, we were using it as population control. So whenever we would get to where we're running out of kennels and running out of space and having to double dogs up, we would go ahead and do a free event and then get back to a reasonable number that was safer for the animals and uh, my employees. And so everybody became more accustomed to it. We had this safety net program in place. That's not what we called it. You know, we just said if there was a concern, but we had that um, net in place and we rarely ever have anyone now that comes in that we're concerned about. Um, last week we did take a pet back. Um, she came in and she was drunk and the dog wasn't on a leash. And, you know, it was, it was a tough situation and, and it still wasn't easy, but, you know, we did end up taking the pet. It just was very unsafe. Yeah. Wow. That story, you know, someone listening to this uh, might say, well, you know, see, there you go. You should be doing more. What stops you from letting those isolated stories, incidents, whatever you want to call them, uh, be what guides your policies? Well, the evidence. I mean, we just, we re I read all the, the studies that Best Friends had put out and some other agencies had. I believed y'all. And then you just do free adoptions and you do low cost adoptions and the people send you pictures and you get all this incredible feedback. So the evidence is there it, that it it is fabulous. And um, I completely embrace low cost and free adoptions and um, not discriminating and being open. I, I just 100% believe that it is the only way your community can help resolve homelessness of pets. It's by everyone participating in these in this method, which is adopting to your wonderful community members. Well, for me personally, it can be. Well, I say, I listen. For me personally, it can be really frustrating for me to watch people do the exact opposite of what you just said, which is to look at all of the evidence, all of the data, all of the studies, case studies, and still just be so dang stubborn to not want to try things. And to be clear, I totally believe we are all trying to do the things we think are best for the animals in our care. But there are folks who will just, God, I mean, they'll go to their deathbed never being open and willing to even, you know, consider some of these programs and policies. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I, I still get tremendous opposition from it. Do you really? After all this time, is it from the public or for your staff? I think it's, I think it's, no, I think the staff is, is, is pretty on board. There is some anxiety every time we do one, uh, but it's, 
pretty minimal. We just openly discuss it. You know, this is why, and we move forward with it. Um, I think it's more other animal welfare agencies, all the um, limited admission. I think many of them just wished that that wasn't in the um, deck of cards, so to speak. I've just been really blessed that I've had best friends. I've gotten to go to y'all's conference. I've gotten to go to Humane Society of the United States conferences. I've been involved in the Shelter Medicine Fellowship with the University of Wisconsin and UC Davis. And so I have spent so much time thinking about and reading about and savoring it. And so my I changed and, and I think I'm impatient for people to get there now. I've been here 19 years. We're doing something that works. We're saving lives. These animals are living amazing lives. Yeah. There are some animals that get loose and get hit by a car or, you know, they let it out of the house, the cat that they adopt to. I mean, there are examples that you can find. We still believe in these programs that save lives and help us engage with adopters here in our community that need these need and want to adopt from us. I kind of have become dismissive when people say you shouldn't be, you should be doing background checks. You should be looking at their Facebook profile. You should be checking the tax assessor's website. I just, I'm like, wow, these new information has been out here for a decade. Everywhere you look if, er, if so many open admission municipal shelters and and uh, no kill agencies with such respectful programs are following these guidelines, I don't know what to say to you when I've tried to explain it twice and you dismiss it. You know, you say no, that's wrong. I mean, I'm surprised, but not surprised that you still, you know, get uh, some less than positive feedback uh, over this. I mean, it's been what seven years after you started doing them. Has that changed your approach at all over time? I mean, no. Listen, no one wants to or should have to sift through a full inbox of angry messages. I mean, might it just be easier to, you know, still do them but be a little less loud about it? So we want tons of media on it, and if we don't get much media or much coverage, uh, we don't adopt a lot of animals. So we try to come up with a little jazzy. Y'all are really good at that. Y'all help me come up with that idea. And now we have, we're able to pay for a graphic artist to help us. So we always try to come up with cute little funny things. And then we pop it out there with the, the mayor's office sends it out as a press release. And then usually our local news channels picks it up, which really, if the news plays it, we get a lot of visitors. And of course, we use social media, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but yeah, we always hit it strong. There's no hiding. If we're going to do it, come on. And uh, people come. And we're, we, sh- we often do now a week. We do six days of our free adoptions because it ends up, you know, we do 20, 30 adoptions a day instead of 100 in one day. And so it's hard when people have to wait in lines and it's just nice. And so we usually will promote it starting uh, when we close on Saturday. We are closed on Sunday here still. So we start, we promote it. um, We've sent out a press release um, Saturday after we close. And then usually the media shows up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, does stories. And so that free event will go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We we found that that works great for us. And then, uh, we lower our adoption fees to $10 
and we'll do a promotion on that. But, you know, we've kind of fatigued our community. They're so used to us doing low cost events. They're used to us doing free events. Sometimes we don't get the coverage like we'd like, but I always feel like the communities, they don't want animals to be euthanized. They don't. That's everywhere. Nobody wants animals to be euthanized. And so I think we just have to believe that and ask for people to come. And they do. People come. And that to me is all about all of that hard work that was put in by so many people in Huntsville for so long, right? To really raise the profile of the issue itself, where, you know, we've talked about places like Austin before on the podcast, you know, where there's like a civic pride in it. And I can reference you uh, now also in Huntsville, you know, there's this pride in the achievement and the community achieved it together. They don't want to let it slip. They want to retain that. And, you know, I, there will be people listening to this. They're going to be pretty envious and wish they had that kind of community support. But the bottom line is anybody can do it, right? It doesn't happen overnight and it isn't easy, but that is what rallying the community is all about. All right. So it's the year 2021, six years after you reach that no-kill threshold uh, of a 90% say rate, but you're still dealing with folks in the community who are upset at the things you're doing. What do you do about that? How do you handle it? Do you meet with them? You know, are you trying to explain why you're doing what you're doing and 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 why it's working and how it's working? Or do you just say, you know what, forget it. I, did, I didn't need them before and I don't need them now. Yeah, I always try to. First, sometimes, depending on, I have to get my emotions in check and make sure I'm at a good place where I can listen because listening is so critical. And then sometimes I may not have all the data that I need to be to be able to have a good conversation because they will bring things up like bait dogs and schemes of adopting pets and doing horrible things to them. But, you know, I just tell them that's not the experience that I've had. That's not the experience the that the large organizations have collected data. And I just try to listen and try to uh, hear their concerns and then help them overcome their fear and try to identify that I used to have that same fear too. But, you know, 20,000 adoptions later, and they usually have examples. And I go, well, I'm not saying it's perfect. And I often can say, are all your adoptions perfect? Another shelter director that I admire so much that's in uh, Jacksonville, you know, she said, if you're going to screen, think of all the animals that have died because you're screening homes so aggressively, you know, I mean, if, if people, and I just thought, well, you're just like brilliant, Denise, you nailed it, woman. I mean, that's how I feel, but I couldn't say it. So I tell you, you know, my perspective, at least from my ivory tower is it's so frustrating to see that for how much progress we've made, and we've made a lot, a lot, like more than I think I ever imagined we would in my career even, uh, that we still though are on the whole, a giant mass of people in animal welfare that can't agree on some basic things sometimes. But more importantly, that we don't work with each other in a way that is respectful and collaborative you know, Best Friends was built on kindness. We don't put up with bash and trash. Uh, you know, I believe that No Kill as a movement is a kind movement, but there is still so much vitriol that is essentially lobbed from one group of people who love animals 
another group of people who love animals. Like, you know, we've talked about agitation on the podcast before. I mean, a hundred percent, it does sometimes require that kind of shakeup. I get that. But in your community, you've been at this a while. And I, I'd like to think that the proof is in the pudding that, you know, the community trusts you and trusts your staff and everyone's on board, but you still are coming up against angry folks from within the animal welfare movement. It's, it's so painful. I think there, I do think there still are some shelters. There's so many that have not chosen to save more lives and, and to figure out a way that the pets don't have to pay for their lives to get out. You know, it, it just, it still disturbs me, but yes, I think when you're not a limited admission shelter, you are forced to think about change in a way that if you're a limited admission shelter, you're not required to, to be challenged as much. And we scramble over here in the open admission world. And I, I get where the arguments come from. I really do. But you draw a line at the bottom of the two, the yes and the no and all that. And I'm like, it works. It, it works. It works. Uh, we are saving lives. We are connecting pets in our community. Uh, we are helping people understand about flea prevention, heartworm, quality dog food, quality cat food. The cats hanging out in the backyard instead of let's trap them and kill them all. They want them to stay. It, it is changing my community. And we needed to keep doing better and be more involved in helping those that need help. I know that. And I, I see that leadership from these pilot programs that Maddie's doing and can't wait for them to get a couple more years down the road so they can tell me how I can quickly get in. And, you know, I just don't have a lot of resources, but I want to be helping more people. I want to be a safety net for every pet we adopt. And that's the thing is, I, you know, you're, you can nitpick me apart. You can. I wish you couldn't because I want to be that good. But yeah, there's going to be incidences. I want to make sure we talk about your actual adoption process. Are you changing any of your policies or procedures, approaches when it comes to doing fee-waived adoptions? Are you still doing the same adoption process and the counseling? No, we do the same process. We do need an official photo ID and we'll work with you if you don't have one. Definitely, obviously, if you're redeeming a pet. And we know it's your pet. Whatever, regardless, you're going to get your pet back. And we're going to try to make money is not going to be a barrier either. So, but whether it's a full priced adoption or a reduced fee or a fee waived, it's the exact same process. We just try to have a good conversation with people and we tell them we can help you. You know, if problems come up, let us know. And we're very flexible on um, foster to adopt pretty much every pet can be fostered to adopt. Um, we're very flexible on returns. We don't put you on a do not adopt list when you return a pet, or most people don't go on a do not adopt. There are some. And we just try to, just like we've been taught, you get as much information as you can, and then you try to help them find a better match. A lot of times it's not their fault. It's not the pet's fault or the owner's fault. It just happened. Like one incident, we got a pet back on Saturday the dog, when it would look at one of the cats, one of the older cats would just scream and start peeing. And 10 days later, it was still doing that. And so they said, it. we had no idea our cat was going to be that terrified of a dog. So we don't need a dog. And so they returned Tessa. But they knew lots of great things about Tessa. 
and sent me lots of beautiful photos. So, I mean, you know, all this stuff, I'm just, our adoption process isn't different. Yeah. And that story about Tessa coming back, you mentioned Denise Deisler earlier uh, down in Jacksonville, Humane, Lawrence Nicholas, who is the COO there, he was on the podcast recently and he had such a great line. Uh, and he said, for them, there's no such thing as a failed adoption. I mean, what is that? It's like a foster home, right? I mean, you said all that info you got about Tessa. Anyway, so for people who are listening, maybe do want to try reducing fees or waiving fees or some kind of adoption promotions uh, or any new program for that matter, I suppose. What do you want to say to them? Please, please do it. Do what I did. Create that safety net that if any volunteer or any staff member is concerned, that they can go directly to a supervisor in a closed private area, explain their anxiety, and that that supervisor will go and solve that issue. It may not be solved to the way that that employee or volunteer wants it, because most of the time we go ahead and let it in our organization, we go ahead and let them have the pet and we're going to follow up with a home visit in the next week. So, I think it's a learning process and and what I can say is after you've adopted you know, 500 pets with fee waived, everybody's going to be much more relaxed about it. Everyone is going to be much more open that um, people's intents are good and that you can trust people. I just trust people. We just have such great success with fee waived adoptions here in Huntsville, Alabama. I definitely believe fee waived adoptions can work anywhere. Please try it. We've got so much information about adoption promotions and removing barriers in your adoption process. Everything you need to know to get animals out the door into loving homes right now. Just go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. Click the link for episode 81, bestfriends.org slash podcast. The team behind this program, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.